Church. It is good to be back again with you this morning. And if you're new or first time in a long time, then about seven weeks ago, we started a brand new series on the life of Jesus Christ from eternity past all the way to eternity still future, uh, looking at who he is, why he came, the different things that he taught, the different encounters that he had. And so this morning, we're going to continue in that series in Matthew chapter 5, uh, our third week on the Sermon on the Mount. And if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn there. We're going to pick it up uh, starting in verse 17. We're going to be talking all about the law today uh, and how it is that Jesus changed the way that we relate to God's law, the Old Testament law uh, today. Uh, a number of years ago, I, I list, was listening to a TED Talk by a, name, by a man named Al Jacobs, uh, who wrote a book called The Year of Living Biblically, One Man's Humble Quest to Follow the Bible as Literally as Possible. I don't know if you guys have ever picked this book up before. You've seen it. It's kind of a funny read. Uh, I was obviously very intrigued by it. the year. You can see the picture. I'm going, okay, this is, I don't know if this is like a, an Onion article, a kind of a complete satire or what, but um, Al is a self-described agnostic Jew. And so it's not a Christian book by any stretch of the imagination, which means that it's going to be pretty uh, funny writing for someone to try to take the law of God as literally as you can possibly take it. And so it's going to be full of all kinds of ridiculous kind of scenarios. Uh, Leviticus says that men should leave the edges, edges of their beard unshaved. And so uh, he did that for an entire year. Uh, he didn't shave at all. And so he would go all around New York and looking like that. And, but that's what he did. Two months he was studying the scriptures. He was recording every time there was an imperative command in scripture, writing it down. And then for the next year, he was just taking it as literally as he possibly could. Uh, there's another hilarious one. The Psalms talk about playing your heart while, harp while tending to your sheep. And so this is him literally walking around Manhattan. The dude rented a sheep. Uh, reminded me of like A&M in a lot of ways. Um, but like the guy like re rented a sheep and he's walking around the streets of Manhattan and he brings, brings a harp with him and he just like set up shop on the corner and just start playing his harp with his rented sheep and that kind of a thing. I thought that was kind of funny. Uh, there's all kinds of rules and, and laws about being unclean. And so, you know, he's judging everybody trying to figure out, are you clean? Are you ceremonially clean? Or how does this whole thing work out? And he would avoid touching you if you were unclean and that kind of a thing. Um, there's other laws about stoning adulterers, which are very unfortunate. And he would carry this pouch of pebbles around. And so he would try to literally try to apply this as much as possible. So he would hang out outside of these shady places that were kind of known brothels in town. And he would hang out around the corner and he would just like lob pebbles at the people that are walking out of this little place, right? To, to, which is morbid and, and weird at the exact same time. But that's the kind of the point of the whole book, right? It's supposed to be a little bit silly, a little bit ridiculous, because um, we've all had this question before, right? Like, which laws are still applicable today? You read the Old Testament, you're kind of reading it going, okay, is this still for me? Why in the world would he say that back then? What's the relevance today? Is, the whole, is there any relevance at all? Right? There's all kinds of questions when it comes to the law and, it's and, and it, if it's relevant for us today. Uh, you listen to, to arguments on TV, and you're going to hear these arguments on TV all the time. Um, it's going to be the part, it's going to be the Bill Mars in the world and people like that that are going to say, when the Bible talks about certain sexual behaviors and calls them sin, then you guys are all over it. But when it talks about not eating shellfish uh, or that people should be executed for breaking the Sabbath, then you conveniently ignore those things. Aren't you just picking and choosing what you want to uh, believe and what you think is best? And it's a good question, right? Like there's all kinds of questions when it comes to the law. And that's just part of it, right? Part of it is which laws are still applicable today. Uh, the other part of it is about like how seriously we need to be taking the law this side of grace, 
right? I mean, how seriously do we need to be thinking about the law this side of grace? I mean, and so some of us are going to struggle with that quite a bit, and we're going to fall into one of two camps typically. Some of us are going to kind of fall into the legalistic side of things, where we're going to be looking at the law of God, and we're going to be kind of doing what Al Jacobs did, and like holding on to it as tight as we possibly can, and, and being certain to obey every little element of it, because we think that the law can somehow provide us a sense of righteousness if we're able to obey it well enough. Right, that's legalism. That's li- literally what it means. It's, it's not being self-disciplined. Uh, it, it's, it's not self-disciplined. It's not working really hard. It's, it's trusting in those things for a sense of self-righteousness. And some of us are going to look at the law, and we're going to choke it to death, and we're going to be on that end of things. Uh, the other part of us are going to be falling on the licentious side of things, where we're kind of looking at the law. We're making much of God's grace, and kind of our, claim, our little motto is going to be, it's, it's all about grace, baby. It's going to be like a, it's little view of law and a large view of God's grace. Um, a number of years ago, I was out at a lake with, with some buddies of mine. We were catching up from college and hadn't seen them in a long time. And one of my buddies had developed a really excessive drinking habit. And it was kind of my first time to see it. And we're talking about some things. And I was like, hey, what's, what's going on? I was like, this wasn't you in the past. Where did, where did this whole thing come from? And that was kind of his response. He's like, I've got grace, baby. He goes, I got grace. I'm claiming grace all day long. He's like, I got so many other things I need to be worrying about. This is the least of my concerns. I'm just claiming grace on this thing. Right? And, and we kind of struggle with it, right? I mean, those are the two extremes about how we approach God's law today. I mean, one view is going to be really, really big on law and really, really small on God's grace. The other side is going to be really, really large on God's grace and really, really small on God's law. And so again, how does Jesus come into the picture and how does he influence the way that we think about and relate to God's law today? That's what we're going to be looking at in our passage. So again, if you have your Bibles, Matthew chapter 5. Uh, we're going to pick it up in verse 17, and just a little reminder, this is the continuous sermon that Jesus is doing. The Sermon on the Mount is a couple chapters long here. Uh, he's preaching from the side of a mountain, not only to his disciples, but to the large crowds. Uh, this is one continuous sermon, and so a couple weeks ago, he already turned our value system upside down when he preached on the Beatitudes, and he essentially said that all these different people in our world today that we wouldn't typically think are blessed, people who are poor in spirit, those who are in mourning, those who are meek those who are persecuted. Basically, he turns our system of values completely upside down, and he says, those people you don't typically think are blessed, those are actually going to be blessed in my kingdom, right? And so he's turning things upside down in the sermon, and in verse 13, he calls those exact same people by proxy, by you and me. He says that you are the salt of the earth, and you are the light of the world. That's who you are, right? You're not defined by those labels of your past. Not, you're not defined by those failures or those, those things that have crippled you in your past. You are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Essentially then, go and be who you were created to be. Go and be salty and bright people who live your lives in such a way uh, that people are able to see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So it's not that they're seeing your good deeds and they're going, hey, uh, Jackson, well done, bro. You're an incredibly moral guy. Way to go. You do gooder person. It's do your good deeds and live your life in such a way that brings glory to the Father and heaven. And so in our passage today, he's going to be continuing in that theme. Essentially, he's already said, go and do good things. Go and do good deeds in such a way that glorifies your Father. And now he's going to be dealing with the more fundamental question about the law and what those good things actually are and how we think about those things. So that's where we're going to pick it up here in verse 17. Here's what he says. Now, don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I haven't come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For, I tru- for truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. 
Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So the first thing I just want to bring out is, is, is just that obviously Jesus has this very high affection, a high view of the law. All right? Uh, you see this immediately. He never minimizes the law. He's always elevating and lifting up the law everywhere he goes. That's what he just said, right? Anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands, teaches others accordingly, would be called least in the kingdom of heaven, right? Like Jesus loves the law. He's lifting up the law everywhere he goes. And next week we're going to expound on that a whole lot more because he amplifies the law in some pretty dramatic ways over here. But he loves the law. And it seems kind of obvious maybe to you and me in order to say, okay, yeah, Jesus loved the law. But it wasn't exactly obvious back then, right? A lot of people back in Jesus' day, they would look at Jesus uh, with a little bit of question mark around their mind because to them, Jesus looked like this radical liberal that had a very loose view of the law, right? I mean, he was always doing things that were pushing the boundaries of the law. I mean, his very first miracle that he ever did was turning water into wine, right? That's going to get you a reputation, right? And, I mean, he would, he would do all kinds of things that were just kind of uh, the, the really weird. He would eat with and befriend tax collectors and sinners. He'd go into their home all the time. And, the, like, those are the people that he hung out with. And he would heal people on the Sabbath. And a lot of people back in the day said, that's not the thing that you do. You don't work at all on the Sabbath, right? It's not even the spirit of the law. It's, like, it's the letter of the law. You don't heal people on the Sabbath. So a lot of people looked at him and were like, hey, what, what are you doing there? you got a loose view of the law. The disciples, they weren't exactly the religious elite, the great students of God's law that a lot of other disciples would typically be. I mean, Peter was a zealot, right? He was, he was an absolute zealot. Uh, Andrew was a fisherman, and Matthew was one of those text collectors that Jesus liked to sit and eat with. And so the first thing that Jesus does in this text is, is he sets the record straight, and he's saying, no, 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 I didn't come to abolish the law. I didn't even come to minimize the law by any stretch of the imagination. I, I didn't come to do those things. I love the law. That's who I truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter is going to pass away. In other words, anyone that's in this licentious crowd, anyone who's also guilty of minimizing the law in any possible way, like they're wrong about that. I love the law. I'm lifting up the law everywhere that I go. And the law is good. It's not going anywhere until hell freezes over, essentially, is what he's saying there. And so that's the first challenge that he's kind of making right here. You licentious crowd, you people who think, I don't care about this thing, you're wrong. Like, I'm elevating, I care about it so much more than you do, right? And then he's going to continue in verse 20, and he's going to kind of attack the other side of things. He's going to say, for I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, it's not just the licentious, licentious people that he's going after in this passage. Like, he's also going after the legalists. He's going after the people that, 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 were, that had a really big view of their ability to always obey and understand the law perfectly. That's who he's going after, these people who are way too confident in their, religi in their religiosity. And he's going, yeah, you also have it wrong too. Uh, you've also got it wrong because even though you know that the law is really, really good, like you're not as good at keeping it as you think that you are. Right? Like even, though, even though you value it, like you know it, you've got the whole thing memorized, you're there every single week, you're not as good at keeping it as you think that you are, and so it's not actually able to do the things that you think that it can do. And so church, right off the bat, I just want you to see like from the very beginning, Jesus is always lifting it up. He's lifting it up and he's lifting it up. He loves the law. The law is a good thing, but he's warning us that there is a way to approach the law that completely misses the entire point of it. And so, of course, it begs the question, okay, well, what's the point of the law, right? 
What's the point of the law? And of course, there's a number of different purposes that Scripture speaks about, which is why Really, there's a number of different types of laws that we're going to find out and we're going to be able to see in the Old Testament. I mean, for example, we're going to see all kinds of civil laws, right? These are going to be the laws that are going to be given to Moses that are going to be meant to govern um, the nation of Israel that's going to outline what justice looks like, what it looks like to keep and maintain order for the nation of Israel. And it's going to be all kinds of really, really weird ones with uh, these consequences and penalties to them that aren't going to make a whole lot of sense to us today. Kind of like today we say, hey, if you're speeding and you get caught by the police, then you're going to get a fine of probably $85. You may go to jail, something like that. Um, Deuteronomy is full of some really, really weird ones. 20, chapter 22 is going to say this. If you see your fellow Israelites ox or sheep straying, don't ignore it, but be sure to take it back to its owner. Right? Like this is maintaining order in Israel, evidently, and applicable to A&M. Again, um, uh, verse 5, a woman must not wear men's clothing, nor a man wear woman's clothing. Uh, for the Lord your God detests anyone who does this, right? If you come across a bird's nest beside the road, verse 7, uh, either in a tree or on the ground, and the mother sitting on the young or on the eggs, don't take the mother with the young. You may take the young, but be sure to let the mother go so that it may be well with you and you may have a long life. Bizarre, right? Uh, legal implications, like this is maintaining order in ancient, ancient Israel, very far removed from where we are today. But there's a lot of these kinds of laws that you're going to read about. Leviticus 19 is going to talk about what it looks like uh, to find justice for the poor uh, in Israel back in the day. And we're going to talk about rebellious children in Deuteronomy chapter 21. Uh, what, we're going to talk about divorce in Deuteronomy 22. Property redemption, Leviticus 25. Robbery, extortion, false witness, restitution, breaking the Sabbath, warfare. All different kinds of civil laws going on about what it looks like to maintain order and in the nation of Israel and what justice looks like at that particular time. Um, there's also a lot of different moral laws that are taking place at the same time, too. And this is where it can get a little confusing because the moral laws often overlap to the civil ones, right? This is God's people. This is a unique covenant relationship that God has made with the nation of Israel. And so there's a lot of overlap between the morality of things and the way those play out with different consequences. But moral laws were always doing the same thing. Moral laws were always giving a statement and a testimony about the holy character of God and what it looks like for his people to also then go and be holy, right? It, 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 they're reflecting the holy character of God and then what it looks like for you and I to live in light of his character and his holiness. And again, everywhere we look in the Old Testament, we're going to be seeing that God is making the exact same statements. Even in the way that he chose to come and give the law to Moses on top of Mount Sinai is communicating that he is a holy God and us, we are not holy. Like there's an enormous disparity between who he is and who we actually are. And so we read about it, Exodus chapter 19, it's a terrifying scene. It's not just God meeting with Moses and saying, hey, tell your friends these things, right? It's a terrifying scene because he's communicating his holiness. Here's what it says in Exodus 19. This is just before Moses goes on top of Mount Sinai. Here's what it says. You shall set bounds for the people all around, saying, beware that you don't go up on the mountain or touch the border of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. That's pretty tough. No hand shall touch him. But he shall surely be stoned or shot through. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. So it came about on the third day, it was morning, that there were thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon, upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound so that all the people who were in the camp, they trembled. Like, like I said, it's a terrifying scene as God is about to give his law to Moses. Mount Sinai was up in smoke, verse 18, because the Lord descended upon it in fire. 
And its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked violently. When the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him with thunder. Church, like, like that's just the setting for how he chose to come and reveal himself to Moses. I mean, can you imagine being the nation of Israel at the base of this mountain? They know what Moses is there to do, essentially. And, and can you imagine being one who's there and experiencing this kind of, uh, this kind of time with the Lord? I mean, I mean, it's a terrifying scene, right? I'll never forget a few years back, I was out at the Galleria with Caleb, and we were standing outside. There's a massive thunderstorm, kind of like this past week. And there's a couple girls, they were in their little... Um, and their little rain jackets and boots and little tiny little girls, they're playing in the rain. They're loving it. They're soaking it up. And all of a sudden, there's this clap of lightning and thunder like, like you never heard. It was one of those kinds of like it shakes the mall and all the car alarms are going off at the same time. It was one of those that just boom, took us all off a of guard. And like everybody was just shaking. Those kids screamed like you wouldn't believe. Like they ran inside. They grabbed their mom and they're like crying, grabbing onto mom's legs and stuff like that. Right, like that's what thunder and lightning does. It communicates you're not really in charge, right? It, it communicates like uh, you're not fully uh, in charge of what's going on here. And it's exactly what God is communicating to the nation of Israel. Like I'm holy and you're not even close to holy. You can't even begin to imagine what holiness actually is. Uh, that's who he is. He's doing this in such a way that three million Israelites at the exact same time are gonna understand that he alone is the almighty, all-powerful, all-holy God and he's not to be trifled with. Verse 12, there's boundaries set up around the mountain. If anyone crosses them, they're put to death. In Genesis chapter 3, it's the same thing with Adam and Eve, right? Like, like, like death enters into the world. They're banished from the garden because they ate a, a forbidden piece of fruit. All to communicate that he is a holy, holy God. And holy can have absolutely nothing to do with unholy. That's why seven different times in Leviticus, he says, Go and be holy as the Lord your God is also holy. I mean, it just, he's just repeating this over and over again. Here's who I am. We don't have this long history together yet. You need to understand who Yahweh is. Go and be holy, my people, as I also am holy. Seven different times, 1145, I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves. Be holy because I am holy. Seven different times, it's the exact same thing because that's what the law requires always. Be holy as I, the Lord your God, am holy. Just be perfect because I, the Lord, am perfect. Be clean because I, the Lord, am clean. Be completely other than because I, the Lord, your God, am completely other than. That's the requirements of the law. And so he shows us what it looks like a little bit in the Ten Commandments. And we, we read those and, and we kind of get some of these different things. And we read about love the Lord your God, Deuteronomy 6, and love your neighbor as yourself in Leviticus 19. Don't oppress your neighbor, things like that. Uh, Leviticus 20 is going to say, don't sacrifice your children to Molech. That's forbidden church okay i'm just kidding it was a problem back then evidently right maybe not so much anymore hopefully and there's all kinds of sexual sins it talks about adultery incest bestiality homosexuality leviticus 18 chapter 20 numbers chapter 5 there's all kinds of moral laws that, that are reflecting what holiness actually looks like for the nation of israel for then and for all times that's the moral law the other kind of law that we're going to see here is the ceremonial laws, right? And this is going to be the things that are going to be dealing with what it looks like to be clean and what it looks like to be right in order to worship that holy God well. And so it's going to be all kinds of restrictions for the priests about how to appropriately make right sacrifices. It's going to be what you can and cannot touch, what you can and cannot do, what you can and cannot say or think or things like that. It's going to be all kinds of systems and sacrifices that are all surrounding blood and all kinds of things of that nature. 
um, about a year ago, I went through this in detail with you when we talked about what the Day of Atonement looked like. You guys remember this by any stretch of the imagination? Like, like that was a bloody, gory day. What it took to, to make atonement, that the, the sins of Israel may be forgiven, like it was an enormous amount of work and it was an enormous amount of blood that had to be shed for atonement to be made. You remember this, right? Like I've got a picture up here of kind of what the Old Testament temple looked like, right? Um, this is kind of a, a, just to give you an idea of what that day of atonement actually looked like. On the outside of these courts is the court of, court of Gentiles. Jews weren't allowed to enter the inside there. There was a dividing wall of hostility, which Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 2. That's going to be the small little wall that you can barely see at the very front of the picture. Court of Gentiles and the dividing wall of hostility. It's a very, very divided culture back then, right? Very divided between Jews and Gentiles, men and women. You've got a court of women that women are allowed to enter into. And then you've got a dividing wall where they're not able to move any further past that. Then you move into the temple. And of course, that's the place where the sacrifices are actually going to be made on the Day of Atonement. Got another one here of the inside of that temple so you can kind of see what's going on here. But that inside of the temple is going to be divided into two places. You've got the holy place and you've got the holy of holies. Inside the holy place, you're going to have a table of showbread. Um, you're going to have uh, the lampstand right there, which is a reminder of God's continual presence. You've got the table of showbread, which is a reminder of God's uh, provision, how he's faithful to provide over and over again for the 12 tribes of Israel. You're also going to have an altar of incense right there, which is going to um, make us remember that our prayers are like incense, incense unto God. It is a sweet fragrance to his nose. It's also going to be a barrier between uh, the holy place and the most holy place. Uh, that curtain right there is going to be dividing those two different places. You got the holy place on the right. You got the most holy place on the left. They weren't really creative with those names or anything, but you got the holy place and the holy of holies taking place. In the middle of that is a giant 60-foot curtain, four inches thick, 60 feet tall, four inches thick, all to communicate, church, that there is separation between a holy God and you. There is separation between a holy God and the holiness of a high priest. Like we can't even fathom what holiness actually is. And all of these different things are communicating that exact same fact. 60 feet of curtain, four inches thick, saying there is distance and separation between you and a holy God. On the other side of that curtain is the holy of holies. And that's where the sacrifice would actually be made by the high priest on the day of atonement. Inside the holy of holies is going to be the Ark of the Covenant. You remember this from um, Indiana Jones. Thank you very much. Uh, there's actually... Scaled replicas you can purchase now. I think we need to get one in our church. But anyway, um, if you see one in the coffee shop, don't be freaked out or anything like that. But, but that's going to be kind of a replica of what the Ark of the Covenant actually is. This is the place where the presence of God was thought to dwell, right? And this is the place where the, the, the presence of God would rest. And so inside the Ark of the Covenant, you're going to have three things. Remember what they are? You've got the, the, the jar of manna. You've got Aaron's rod, and you've got the tablets of the Ten Commandments. They would rest and remain inside of the, uh, inside of the Ark of the Covenant. On top of the Ark of the Covenant, you're going to have a, what's called a mercy seat, uh, the place of atonement, essentially, if you will, the place of propitiation. You're going to read Paul talk about that a lot in the New Testament. And this is where the blood is going to be shed and where the sacrifices are going to be made. Also on top of the Ark of the Covenant are going to be two cherubim, two angels that are going to be looking like they're protecting uh, that place. Again, communicating. There is distance, church, and there is separation that exists between a holy God and the people of his creation who are very, very far from holy. 
And so the day of atonement is going to come, and Leviticus 16 is going to talk about this a lot, but once a year the high priest is able to enter in and make, a, and make sacrifices for the sins of the people. And this is when it gets really, really intense because the week before that takes place, he'd have to go away by himself in order to make sure that he is perfectly pure and righteous enough to be able to go and make these sacrifices and to do them really well. Like you can imagine how terrifying of a thing this is. I'm so glad this is not part of my job description, right? Like he would go away and, and his life was literally on the line when he made those sacrifices. If he didn't do them right, if his heart was not pure, if he was defiled by the things that he touched or the things that he did, right, like he could be struck dead on the spot. So for an entire week, he's doing prayers and he's doing cleansing rituals and he's bathing and cleaning and all these different kinds of things to make sure that he is holy enough to enter into the Holy of Holies on behalf of himself, the other priests and the other people that are there that day. So the Day of Atonement comes, and of course, this is when it all counts, and he's going to go in, and he's going to go through this, uh, this little um, system, this little cycle of, of different sacrifices. And the first sacrifice he's going to make is for himself. And so he's going to go into the Holy of Holies. He's going to be wearing um, full white linen clothes from head to toe. He's going to make his sacrifice. He's going to pour it on the altar seat in the Holy of Holies. And he's going to come back out, and as you know, if you've worn any kind of linen clothes in the past, what happens when you sweat in linen? right? It's, it's nasty. It's disgusting. Like everything clings to your body and he's going to come out and he's going to be covered in the blood of the lamb. And he's going to walk back out and he's going to need to go through this cycle one more time. And so he's going to slip behind this screen. Everybody's going to be watching. He's going to have a tiny bit of a screen of privacy and he's going to bathe once again, cleanse himself once again, put on brand new clothes of linen so he can go and make the second round of sacrifices, this time for the sins of the priests. And so he's going to go and he's going to do the exact same thing. Round three comes back out. He cleanses again. He's behind the screen and he puts back on the white linen. And this time he's making the third sacrifice for the sins of the people. This is where the, the ceremony of the scapegoat is going to come into play. And we all know what a scapegoat is, right? It's the intern in your office that you blame for every bad thing that's taking place at work, right? Right? It's, it's like this thing took place over here. It is Billy's fault over there. And you're blaming him. He's a scapegoat for all the problems. And so this is a major part of Old Testament Jewish worship, right? And so this is part of what they did. They would bring in two different goats. One of them would be, sat, would be slaughtered and sacrificed for the sins of the people. That blood, the high priest would take that blood. He would sprinkle it towards the people, right? And then he would take a piece of wool. He would dip it in that blood, and he would tie it around the neck of the other lamb, of the other goat. And they would set that goat free so that it can leave the premises and wander very far away, communicating that your sins have been forgiven, your sins have been taken far, far, far away. Now, tradition has it that, um, tradition has it that they, would, uh, they would station a priest on the outside of the camp because uh, they wanted to make sure that this goat would actually leave the camp and not return. You can imagine, right, like if you're doing this whole thing and you know what it's supposed to symbolize, you don't want that goat coming back into the camp. You're like, ah. My sins are back, okay, this old, we got to do this whole thing again, and like, it's just bad news. And so there's a dude out there, and he's making sure that that goat finds a cliff somewhere and does that whole kind of a thing. It's bloody, right? It's terrifying. I mean, can, honestly, can you imagine living underneath that law? Can you imagine if that's what you did? Not every single Sunday, but you did that here at Dallas Bible Church. That was part of our worship services or things like that. I mean, can you imagine, like, like all the rules about what you can do and what you cannot do, about what you can say, what you cannot say, what you can touch, what you cannot touch. Can you imagine not being able to eat bacon or shellfish or shrimp or any of those beautiful delights that are right there? Like, can you imagine all the blood of the ceremonial law? I mean, can you imagine the, the harsh consequences of the civil law that were part of your daily routine? 
Like all the constant failure from the morality of the law, which not only judged your righteousness by the things that you did, but it judged your righteousness by the things that you were thinking about and the motivations of your heart. Like at some point, church, like you're going to start to get the point, right? Like at some point in time, you're going to start to believe, you know what, there's a holy God and he is so far out there, like I'm not even close to him. Like he's a little bit more than a friend of mine. Like, like at some point in time through all these different things, you're going to start to believe there is a distance between me and God that has to be bridged. And this law is incapable of providing that bridge for me. Right? At some point in time, you're going to get this message that he's way over there. I'm way over here. I'm incapable of coming to him in and of my own strength that I actually still need saving, which is exactly why Jesus comes and he says what he says. He says, hey, good news, church. I didn't come to just simply teach the law. I didn't even come to abolish the law. I came to lift it up, but I, but I, but I came to fulfill the law. It's why I'm here. I didn't come to teach it. I didn't come to abolish it. I came to fulfill the law. Everything the law requires you to do, I came to do on your behalf. It's what Hebrews is going to explain it like this. I love, I love the book of Hebrews. It says, when he, Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, Jesus entered through the greater, more perfect, ha- higher tabernacle. Check out all the different comparisons in this passage. Not made with hands, that's to say, not of this creation, not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once and for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled, they're able to sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh. How much more will the blood of Jesus Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, how much more will his blood cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Church, in other words, Jesus came to do everything that we could not do. Jesus came to fulfill everything the law was not able to do on our behalf. The law required a great high priest. And so Jesus became the better high priest who was fully man and he was fully God. The law required this annual sacrifice. And so Jesus entered into the temple once and for all. The law provided the temporary remission of sins. They needed to come back to it over and over and over again. And so Jesus came for eternal redemption once again, once and for all. The law required the blood of an innocent lamb, and so Jesus became the lamb of God who came to take away the sins of this world. The law required perfect purity, perfect holiness, perfect righteousness, and so Jesus came and he sacrificed himself without blemish and without sin. The law required a scapegoat to come and to carry away our sins once and for all, and so Jesus became our scapegoat to come and carry them away forever. Church, everything the Old Testament was pointing to was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Even the lampstand that was there in the holy place represented the continuous presence of God's light. And Jesus comes on the scene and he says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but he will have the light of life. Even the bread that's right there, it symbolizes his faithful provision. And Jesus says, I am the bread of life. And he who comes to me will never hunger. And he who believes in me will never thirst. Even in Leviticus 16, church, like when the high priest is finished with the, with, the, with the atonement ceremony, he's required to take off these bloody linens, and he's required to leave them there at the foot of the altar. And in Luke chapter 24, when the ladies are at the empty tomb, uh, remember what they find there at the empty tomb? There's no body, there's no blood, there's a pile of linens right there. That's it. 
Because atonement had been made, church. Everything was finished at that point in time. His last words on the cross were tetelestai, meaning it is finished. Everything is done. The ceremony is done. Everything has been purchased and paid for, church. The curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, signifying literally and metaphorically that we now have access to the Holy of Holies. There's no more distance. There's no more separation. Through Christ, you and I have access to the Holy of Holies. We have access to dynamic living relationship with the living and holy God. In Christ, there's no more separation because those who are far away have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. In Christ, there's now no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus have been set free from the law of sin and death. In Christ, there's no more racism. There's no more sexism. There's no more needless divide because he himself has become our peace, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. He's made two groups into one and he has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. And church, here it is. Every single time that we gather on a Sunday morning, we will come to worship our risen Savior. We are reminded of everything that God has done for us in the perfect life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's why you look around and like, there's no more priests here. It's why we look around and there's no more goats being sacrificed. There's no more blood. There's no more diets. There's no more, you can touch this. You can't touch this. Men, you go over here. Women, you go over here. We've got, we, we've got intersections. We've got all nationalities. We've got people of every race, every, every socioeconomic background. People are coming together in one. Every single time we, we gather together in worship, we are reminded of what God has done for us in the perfect life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Church, everything that the law required, Jesus came to fulfill it. And he came to fulfill it for you. I love, I think it was Charles Wesley or John Wesley's story. One of the most famous um, evangelists, founder of the Methodist Church. He was a traveling evangelist for the longest time and very, very successful in things that he was doing. And it hit him one night that he didn't even believe the gospel for himself. He was praying one night and he's saying, I've been telling everybody else how to come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, and I've never even received or understood that Christ died as a sacrifice upon that cross so that I personally could live. And he said, even as a traveling evangelist, it was that night that I came to realize that Christ's atonement was for me. It wasn't just general. It wasn't just generic. It wasn't just some theological thing that we talk about and we, we exhort other churches with that Christ actually died on my behalf as a substitute for me. And he gave his life to the Lord as a traveling evangelist right then and there. Church, everything that the law required, Jesus came and fulfilled. So back to the original question, right? Like, how are we supposed to think about the law today? Well, obviously, we're not under the civil law because we're not the nation of Israel. He's created a brand new people. And obviously, we don't apply the ceremonial parts of the law because they were all pointing to Jesus and they've been perfectly fulfilled in him. And his blood has satisfied all those different requirements. And obviously, we're not to apply it like the licentious people who think that the law is not a big deal and, and that it's not even good or anything like that. And obviously we don't need to fall into the camp of the legalists who are choking it to death and holding on to it for righteousness and for life and for holiness and all these different kinds of things. Church, here it is. Because Christ came and he did everything that he did, because Christ didn't come to abolish the law, but he came to fulfill it, you and I can love the law of God too. We can lift it up. We can amplify it. We can, we can go after it. We can pursue it but we can pursue it from a place of victory. It's a major difference, church. It's a, it's a place that brings you joy. I mean, remember what he just said in Hebrews. He said, how much more will the blood of Jesus Christ, who through the eternal spirit 
offered himself without blemish to God, how much more will his blood be able to cleanse your conscience from dead works so that you're able to serve the living God? In other words, church, like the law is still good. And the law, the moral parts of the law are still beautiful, right? He's still after your obedience and he's after my obedience too. He's just not going to be using shame to do it. Conviction, yes. Awareness of your guilt, yes. But not shame, and there's a major difference. So it's not that you're never going to feel guilty again, right? That would make you a sociopath. That would be very, very unhealthy if you never felt the conviction of your own guilt, right? I think it was Brene Brown who said it like this. Guilt is for the soul what pain is to the body. Guilt tells your body when there's something physically wrong, and guilt tells your soul when there's something that's spiritually wrong. Guilt is the thing that says I've done something bad. Shame is the thing that says I am something bad. You know the difference there? When you're having an argument with someone that you love, like what's easier to say? Honey, I've done something wrong or I am something wrong. You're going to fight for weeks and weeks and weeks if you feel like the accusation against you is that you are something wrong. You're a horrible husband. You're a horrible wife. You're a horrible person versus I've done something wrong that I can own, I can repent, and I can turn from. And what we're seeing here right here is that, is that Jesus came to take away shame. He's not saying that you're never going to feel guilt anymore. He's just saying that in Christ, you and I have now been cleansed by his blood. And so the temporary conviction of your guilt can actually lead you to healthy repentance and obedience rather than crippling you with shame. So church, here it is. He's still after obedience. He's just after a whole new kind of obedience. I want to wrap it up with a story. Um, this is one of those stories I heard from a pastor a long time ago. I don't think it's actually true. Um, <laughs> so uh, nevertheless, I think it makes a great point. I've never been able to forget it, and I loved it a long time ago. But he tells this story of, uh, of a little kid, and uh, he and his sister went to grandma's house one summer uh, to go spend the entire summer with her. And like a lot of young little boys, he gets uh, really, really bored that summer. And so he's in the backyard. He's playing around. And Grandma gave him a little BB gun. I don't know why, but she gives him a little BB gun. And he's in the backyard, and he's playing around with his BB gun. And I can imagine he's playing this game. You know the little game that we all played as little kids? We're kind of going, okay, I got this BB gun. I wonder how close I can get to that really, really breakable thing that Grandma loves over there without actually hitting it. You know what I'm talking about? And so he's playing around in the backyard, and, and uh, Grandma has a pet duck out there. And he's playing around, and he's going, I wonder how close I can get to this duck. And so he's shooting, and he's doing target practice, and of course he goes, and he hits the duck. He kills the duck. The duck is dead. And so she, he goes, and he grabs the duck, and he's looking around. He's going, oh my gosh, what do I do? She's going to be so angry about this. So he takes the duck, and he buries it in the backyard, and he thinks that he gets away with the whole thing. A few hours later, his sister comes around. He's like, I know exactly what you did. And she's like, I'm not going to let you get away with it. You owe me. You owe me big time. And so he's dreading the whole thing. He's like, don't tell grandma, don't tell grandma, I'll do whatever you want. So every time, for the next, uh, every day for the next few weeks, when it was her time to do the chores or her time to clean up the backyard or the room or make the bed or do the dishes, whatever the thing may be, whatever was her time to do that thing, she would come over to him. And when grandma was gone and she would just whisper in his ear, remember the duck, remember the duck. That's all it took. The kid was just, he's riddled with guilt and shame and Every time that she would say that, remember the duck, uh, he would give in and he would go and do her errands and all her different chores and different things like that. About four weeks pass and he can't take it anymore and he's overcome with guilt and shame and he's like, I gotta finally, I gotta tell grandma. So he goes and he finds grandma and he says, grandma, I confess, I'm the one that did it. Like your duck didn't fly off for the winter like I told you. Uh, (laughs) 
your duck didn't fly off. I shot and killed your duck. I buried it. I tried to cover up my tracks. I'm so sorry. And he's just, he's just crying and crying and crying. And of course, as a young kid, he thinks grandma's going to be really, really ticked off and that he's going to be grounded for the rest of the summer and he's going to be in all this, kind of, all this trouble. And grandma just turns around and gives him this big, giant hug. And she's weeping. And she just starts saying, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. And of course, the kid's really confused by the whole thing. And he's like, grandma, why in the world are you saying thank you to me? And she just looks at him and says, honey, I knew exactly what happened the whole time. I was there at the window. I saw you shoot my duck. I saw you kill my duck. I saw you bury my duck. I, I saw the entire thing. But here's the thing. I, I forgave you as soon as the whole thing happened. And here's the deal. For the past few weeks, you've been embarrassed and you've been in hiding in shame. And we haven't been able to have this conversation. We haven't been able to... You've been avoiding me for weeks and weeks and weeks, and I've just been waiting for you to get fed up by your sister's blackmail and finally come talk to me again. Church, and what Jesus is just simply saying here is that I came to take care of the duck. That's it. Whatever that duck may be in your life, like I came to take care of that duck, that thing that, that keeps you awake at night, the thing that keeps chattering in your head that you've never been able to let go of, I came to take care of that duck. And so church, don't let shame keep you away from him. Like, don't let shame keep you from taking that next obedient step in your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. I told you a little while ago, I got these season passes with Caleb to go to Six Flags. And the past two times that we went, um, I've seen people walking around the, the, the park with this wristband. If you've been around the church, you know what this is. We did Revive Texas a little over a year and a half ago now. We pass out these wristbands. They communicate the gospel on them. And I've seen people wearing them around at Six Flags. And the past two times, I ran into people in, in the middle of the line. They were kind of crossing paths, and that person's wearing the wristband. And so I started talking with this lady um, a little while ago. And I asked her about it. I was like, where'd you get the wristband? She goes, I, I was walking around town about a year ago, and some people came up wanting to pray with me. And they shared, the, they shared with me about Jesus. They gave me this wristband. I lost it for the longest time. And and I got, it out of the, I got it out of my drawer a few weeks ago. I was like, that's interesting. Why do you think that you, why do you, think that, 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 uh, you did this? And he's, she's like, I think there's something there for me. And so we had a chance to walk through these different things again. And, and I asked her, I was, like, I was like, what's happened since then? Have you been able to plug into a church? Or you've been able to grow in your relationship with the Lord? And, and she goes, oh, honey, oh, honey, <laughs> you don't know. You don't know the things that I've done. I can't, I haven't found a church. I haven't, I haven't this, that, and the other. Church, and what Jesus is saying is that the gospel is not complete until you know he came to take care of the duck. That thing that's keeping you away, that thing that's keeping you from running with the Lord Jesus Christ, that thing that's keeping you from walking with him obediently, that thing that's keeping you from engaging with him in a, in a quiet time in the morning, from engaging him in prayer, from going to that missions meeting and engaging his mission that he's called you to engage. Like he came to take care of that duck. He came to take care of that shame. Church, the law is really, really good. Jesus lifts it up. Next week, we're going to talk in depth and in detail about the different ways that he kept lifting it up, and he kept raising that bar, and he kept raising that standard over and over again. He is absolutely about your holy obedience unto him, but he came to take care of the duck once and for all. So church, do not ever, ever, ever let the enemy say to you, remember the duck. Let shame be undone. And let the reality of Christ's victory free you to serve him well.